Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. There are so many blessings in the Christian life. Oh God, how we praise you for those mountaintop experiences. How we praise you, Lord, that you take us aside. That as it were, you take us above where you have prepared a table for us in the midst of our enemies. A break from the battle, a break from the rut, a taste of absolute freedom, surrounded and supported and encouraged by you and your people and your word. Lord, you're just so good to us. And Lord, how we thank you that you use your word to encourage us, even in the midst of the battles, even when we're not on a mountaintop, that the word is sweet to our souls. And that it's alive and it's active. Father, we do pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us individually. Something of the meaning that you were seeking to convey to the people that stood in front of you that day in Galilee could be conveyed in a fresh way, in a personal way to our hearts as we read your words. And we do ask this in your name. Amen. John's Gospel, which we have been studying for some time, is very different from the other Gospels. Very different. I have to remind myself of that every time I study it. It's just so different. And part of it is because John already had the other Gospels, perhaps even in his possession when he wrote this. He was so old and he wasn't wanting to to really go back across all the ground that had been plowed by the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but that he wanted to bring in some other things, things that had been left out. And he is particularly fascinated by the I am statements of Jesus Christ, it seems, because it's in the gospel of John that you have these famous I am sayings. For example... Here in this chapter, you have Jesus, I am the bread of life. Later on in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, I am the gate for the sheep. In chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, a favorite of so many of us, I am the true vine. And in chapter 18, I am a king. So we are looking at the first of these great I am statements, I am the bread of life. You remember how we got into this, don't you? If you don't, I'll refresh your memory. It's been a while. Jesus had been preaching on the hillside. He had gone away for a retreat, as it were, with his men. And, and they had gone away to rest. But the people, the multitudes, found out where they were. And so they all gathered collectively there. Wouldn't have been hard for multitudes to gather because it was Passover time and millions were on their way to Jerusalem. They would have been passing through this area. So they gathered on the hillside, perhaps up to 30,000 of them, including men and women and children, and Jesus had fed them miracle bread from heaven, remember? And they wanted to take him by force and make him a king because they had now seen quite a bit about him that caused them to realize he was not normal, he was well beyond normal, and had a power that no other men have. And... 
Tragically, they stopped short of going on to discover more about him and they wanted to take what they had already come to know and use that to make him king. But that was not what he was all about. They wanted to make him a political king. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords and had come to be the savior of men. And much of what this bread discourse is about is explaining back to the very same people, in case you haven't seen this before, it's about explaining back to the very same people what he really is all about. You think I'm all about power and you can use that power to throw off the Roman yoke? That's the farthest thing from what I'm about. What I'm all about is I'm the bread of life. And that's one of the reasons he gave them the bread, to prepare them, to show them that he cared about the provision for their lives. What this section is all about, and really I want to focus today on verse 35, what it is all about is the ultimate provision that Christ has for your life. The ultimate provision. And what he is really all about. So, we come to this passage and we left off with verse 33 or 34. I want to back up and start from there. He says for the, in verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Now, still, they don't understand. They're still stopping short. They're thinking about Moses and the manna and the wilderness and all of that. They're thinking how he fed them just the other day with miracle bread from heaven. And what they really want is a contract with Jesus that he'll deliver bread always, every day, for the rest of their lives. So that's really what they want. Lord, give us this bread always. He gives life to the world. You see, to them, bread was life. It was their life. It was the mainstay of their life. And so he is there with them and they want this bread always. And in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He's inching them forward. He's taking them from their preoccupation with the material into an understanding and an embracing of the spiritual. I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's a statement of total provision. What does he mean when he says, I am the bread of life? Well, in this part of the world, and you see it even now, if you go to Israel, there's people selling bread on the street and you can get it hot, fresh made all over Jerusalem especially. Bread, pita bread, all kinds of bread, but bread is the mainstay of life. And with the exception of the nomads that would travel around, that was basically what people ate. And I told you in our last message here in John that the word bread appears all over. A couple hundred times in the Old Testament in one way or another. Seventy-nine times in the New Testament. And it's all an just showing the idea of how important bread was in their lives in the Mideast. Now imagine, he's talking to these people. They are very poor. Some of them never knew where their next piece, literally, of bread was coming from. So their great concern in life is all about provision for life itself, which to them meant bread. Now, if he was in Asia, it would have not been bread that would have been so significant as what? Rice. I did that for you, Rose. 
Rose from Thailand. She's here with us. She, um, she tells us every time she comes, you know, should we take her, what do you want? I'd like Mexican food, I like Italian, whatever. But after a while, she starts to miss, you do, right? She starts to miss her rice. Rice, they have it at every meal. It is the mainstay of the Asian diet. So had Jesus been in Asia, he would have found a boy with a bowl of rice, and everybody would have had rice on the hillside. They would have followed him around, and then they would have uh, wanted more rice. And he probably would have said, I am the rice of life. He that comes to me will never hunger or thirst. So you need to get that whole understanding in your mind. It sort of takes the mystical thing out of it so you can begin to understand it and then begin to deal with it. Until you understand the symbol, you can't really apply it to your life. So that's the whole idea. It's the, the whole thing of the very source and provision of life, which to them was all focused in the idea of bread. So that's what the bread is all about. Now, if you look at verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me. Mark how aggressive they were to come to him. They had followed him into his area where he was retreating with the disciples. That was very aggressive. They had stayed well into the day as they saw the display of his power and all of that. And finally he felt sorry for them and provided the food. Then when uh, they had gone across the lake in the boat, they had run around the lake to get back to him. So they were coming to him in a very aggressive way. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me. Now you've been aggressive to come to me, but what I want to say to you is that if you will aggressively come to me for another kind of provision, that's the kind I really want to give you. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So the idea is you come to me, you find out what I'm all about, and then you believe in me, and in the process of salvation and coming to know God, you receive the greatest provision that could ever be given to you, and that every human being so desperately needs. So what does it mean to come to Christ? Well, you know, there's so many ways we could describe it, right? We could say, well, it's to believe. He says that right there. We understand, I think most of us, that to believe is well beyond an assent to the facts. To sum that up in one scripture, James writes, and he says, the devils believe and tremble. But there is no devil going to heaven. There's no plan of redemption for fallen angels, for demons. But they believe. And so often when you see um, Jesus cast a demon out of someone or several demons, they come out and they say, we know who you are, the Son of God. No question. They believe. But they believe without any hope of going to heaven. Some have called that devil faith. The devils believe and tremble, but they remain devils still. It's quite a thought, isn't it? So to just believe... In that sense, as an ascent to the facts, to know who Jesus is and, and to leave it right there, really isn't to come to Christ. It's to come up, to behold, and to understand. That's really what that is. He says, he who comes to me, he who believes in me, you know, he, he blends the two. You must come and embrace him. 
So many ways we could explain it. Someone has said, well said, that just get any good Greek scholar, that the word believe in the original that's usually used, it means to trust in, to cling to, to rely upon. So it's well beyond an ascent to facts. It is placing your whole life in Christ's hands and trusting Him to save you, rescue you from your sins. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said about this. I thought he put it really well. He says, what does it mean to come to Christ? It means that movement of the soul, which takes place when a man, feeling his sins and finding that he cannot save himself, hears of Christ and applies to Christ, or, or comes and begins to seek out Christ, and then trusts in Christ. He lays hold of Christ, and he leans all his weight on Christ for salvation. When this happens, a man is said in Scripture to come to Christ. So that's it. I like to call it a belief that bows. Is it a belief? Yes, it's a belief that bows. Bows to Christ as Lord, who He is. You confess, you believe in your heart, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God says He will save you. That's what it means to come to Christ. So he is the bread of life. We come to him. If we do, we will never hunger and thirst. But what does it mean to never hunger and thirst? Have you ever stopped and really thought it through? I think that probably a lot of us have read this. And it can either bless you or frustrate you, depending on the mood you're in or the place you're in or the season you're in in Christian life, right? Let's say you've been a Christian now for many years. Or even two. That's good enough to feel like it's been many. Most two-year-old Christians feel like they know everything there will ever be to know in the Christian life. Five-year-old ones are discouraged. And the ten-year-old ones know they don't know anything. And the twenty-year-old ones are just crippled and clinging to Christ for everything. And they know that any good thing comes from Him or there's nothing good within you. And on it goes. So, say you've been a Christian for a while. And you come and you read... If you come and believe upon me, you will never hunger and thirst. Okay, you've been a Christian for a while. But let's just say, let's add to the picture. Let's just say, recently, you've been struggling in your life. Let's say, suddenly, something you haven't been doing for years has come up again and you're being tempted about it. And let's just say you've fallen a couple of times to the temptation. Yes, and I did have your bulletin bugged, and I am talking about you. And it, it is a recording I was listening to from your home. But let's just say, I'm just kidding. You know, there's always one who worries about that. Did God tell you about me? You kept looking at me. <laughs> or like the guy whose wife came to our Bible study one time in our home, and uh, I just went on and on and on and on. And then he came back another time, and he came without her. And everything in the whole message was the profile of his life. And on the way home, they got in the biggest fight of their whole marriage. He accused her of calling me and making me take a pad and pencil and write down the sins of his life and sharing them openly in a Bible study and looking at him repeatedly. You know, sometimes these things happen. Let's just say, now you've fallen to one of these old sins that's cropped up again. Okay, is that enough? So you come now and you read this thing. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now you read that and you go, oh no. Maybe I never came to him. Because lately I, 
I've had this thirst. I drank again. And I'm the kind of person, one drink and I'm on a binge for a month and it's been a month and it's been a raging thirst and... Oh no. Have you ever gone through that? Of course you have. Many of you have. If you read your scriptures and you've read John, you've gone through that. So what do you do with it? What is Jesus talking about here? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. I mean, there's always somebody on a diet in a congregation like this, right? And so you tiptoe down at two in the morning and you open the refrigerator, you know, and you drop the cap off the jar that you're unscrewing and it rolls on the kitchen floor and your spouse comes down and flicks on every searchlight in the whole house and there you stand a handful of peanut butter of all things no bread or anything and your spouse says what is the matter with you I thought you were on a diet would I have to put a lock on this refrigerator two in the morning and a handful of peanut butter what kind of a hunger do you have you're weird and there you stand and you turn on your devotions the next morning I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. Oh, I'm so weird. I get up in the middle of the night and a handful... Like the girl, I was in Kodiak Island one time. This is a true story. Kodiak Island, we were working in a cannery. And this precious Christian sister was on a diet. And she was afraid if she didn't lose X amount of weight, that her fiancé, the next time he saw her, would break off the engagement. So it's all she ever thought about for days. Well, at break... In these canneries, they would put out all these cookies and donuts, you know, whole packfuls of this and this and this, then all this coffee, and you'd sit at break, and you worked so hard, and it was cold. I mean, coffee and donuts and cookies, it was the hope of your life throughout the job. It was wet. You know, if you ever want to find out, go to Kodiak Island and work in a cannery and, you know, end of winter. And so there she was, and one day, she sort of vanished at break time. And I also noticed that there was a pack of cookie and donuts missing. So I couldn't find her. At the end of break time, I'm just walking down the hall, going back to work. She, the, door, the door of the restroom was flung open. She burst out into the hallway, looking both ways, her face all flushed. She said, I just know it. I just thought he's going to break up with me because I'm going to be so fat because I ate the whole box of cookies and the whole box of donuts too. Now if you've ever wrestled with that, and we can tell those which ones of you that do. <laughs> and then you come, and you're not so theologically sound, and you come and you read this, especially if you're in some Christian dieters club, you know, thin for him type thing, <laughs> then <laughs> now you feel that he shall surely cast you off because, oh no, you're not satisfied with the bread of life. You've got to have all this other stuff too. And you have this raging hunger. Oh, Jesus, if I only trusted in you, I'd never hunger. I'd be thin. I wouldn't thirst. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, let's get it very clear. He is definitely not talking about a perfect life. Definitely not. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He is definitely not saying, you will never thirst again ever for a moment in your life for alcohol let's say if you've had that thirst you will never hunger again you know for this or that you'll never sin again you'll never fall again you'll never want the things of the world again we have to get that clear in our minds 
if for no other reason than to understand this, Jesus was tempted by Satan to turn, at the end of a 40-day fast, to turn the rocks into what? Bread. Jesus, the sinless, holy one of God, who never sinned, tempted in all ways as we are, he was tempted by the devil to be given a shortcut to get all the kingdoms of the world, remember? So here's the devil tempting Christ randomly, however he felt like. So to understand that is to understand this, that throughout your Christian life, it doesn't matter how holy you get or how devoted you get, there will be temptations that will come from the devil. Some of them will be long gone ones, and other ones will be perhaps the most shocking of all brand new ones. And there will be ones you never dreamed you could ever be tempted by. One man's strength, another man's weakness, and you never thought you could be tempted in that way, and suddenly you are. So to read, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst, is not to say you'll never be tempted again with a thirst or a hunger for the things of the world because the devil himself will bring that to you. If it isn't perfection, in the sense of those things, a perfect life, then what is it? I think what it is, is the ultimate provision for life. The ultimate provision for life, in the highest sense that you can know it while still human and still on this planet before you go to heaven. As a saved sinner, it, it becomes, I think, the ultimate provision. And so I want to work through a few thoughts that I think it really has to do with. Here are these people, they've been misguided. Just think of the crowd. They've been misguided by the religious leaders of their day. The Pharisees, the scribes, they're so religious, but they don't know God. They are described by Jesus as the blind leading the blind, and they all go into the ditch, right? In another place, he says, you're all clean on the outside, but you're rotten on the inside. You're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. These are the people that were giving them their concept of God and the answers to life. These people have a tremendous need to know the ultimate truth about God in their lives. So when he says, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst, I think one of the main things is that you will never hunger and thirst again to know the ultimate truth about God and your life if you will come to me. And that is a massive issue to be dealt with. To know that somehow I could come to the place where I would never hunger and thirst again to know the ultimate truth about God in my life. In other words, does He exist? Can you remember thinking that before you became a Christian? Maybe you're thinking it now. Maybe you're not yet converted. You're just seeking. Does He exist? I remember thinking that. I mean, what a thing it is to not be born again and to go to the desert. Some of you go to the Colorado River, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you go to Hawaii, you know what I'm talking about. But to get away and to look at the stars, to see a full moon and a sparkling sky, and to get a telescope and study the universe, the question begins to shout at you because the Psalms say so. In every nation, every language, every tongue, the sky, the heavens, and the universe declare His glory. Does God exist? And the question... Okay, if you start moving down that avenue, which one is he? I mean, I don't know if you've ever studied the Hindu religion. 
They have millions of gods, millions of gods. And they keep making up new ones all the time. So let's say you live in India and you have this pantheon and more of gods. Does God exist? Okay, which one is he? I want to know the ultimate truth about God in my life. Which one is he? Is he to be found in Buddha? Is he to be found in, in Brahman? Is he to be found in whatever? So to come to Jesus Christ is to find out whether or not God does exist and which one he is. And how about this question? Does he care about the human race? You know, the deist, they say that God created everything and turned it loose. You're dealt out your hand of cards, as it were, and you've got to work it well throughout your game in life. That's the deist. That's a cold-hearted view of God. Does God care? Do you understand that you could, and you could try this if you want, you can go through every religion that's out there and study them? Outside of Christ, all of the Eastern religions and all of that, none of them speak of a God that really loves you and really cares about you. Take Greek mythology, for example. And same as Roman mythology with different names, Zeus, Jupiter, that kind of thing. Diana, Aphrodite. Take that. You notice how the gods are always fighting. And half the time, they're really mean to the people that they're gods over. And you go through all the religions of the world, and what you find out is that when you come and you read, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You're finding a message of love that is not found in any other religion of the world. So you begin to know the ultimate truth about God in your life. Does he exist? Which one is he? Does he care about me? Now how about this one? This is the greatest of all questions after you're moving down that avenue. Can he be known? Can he be known? Does he care about me? If he does, can I somehow know him? If he can be known, does he speak? That's another question. Does he speak? And so these are the answers that Jesus brings when he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You will never hunger and thirst again to know the ultimate truth about God in your life. I don't know about you, but when I became born again, I sat down and, I, and one of the first things that hit me was this. These were the words in my mind. The search is over. The quest is over. I can get on with my life because I had literally gone down every one of these avenues. And what a great day it is when the search ends and you cease to hunger and thirst to know who God is and how He fits into your life. You come to the end of that search. Another thought I think that is bound up in this statement that you'll never hunger and thirst is that you will come to know the ultimate cure for guilt in your life. Have you ever hungered outside of Christ to find a cure for your guilt? You know, you sin and you can't help it. You sin and you can't help it. You do one thing, you get hooked and you do it again. And you do it again and then next thing you know, it's become a habit. And you can't help it. And you're guilty about it. That is a very, very hard thing to deal with. Could you turn in your Bible to Psalm 32, 1? Psalm 32, 1.
David wrote this looking back what was nearly a year of not repenting after his sin of murder with Uriah the Hittite, adultery with Bathsheba. Even after he did all that, he did not repent for almost a year. He didn't repent until the baby was born. It was sometime after that, so it was nearly a year. Not repenting, can you imagine, of the sin of murder of Uriah the Hittite, the defilement of his servants around him that were attendant to the crime, not to mention the defilement of Bathsheba and the defilement of his own life. For almost one year he did not repent of that. But look at the, the effect of the guilt in verse 3. Just look down at verse 3. He says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all day long. Have you ever known the roaring of guilt? He's talking about the guilt. Have you ever known that roaring? Where the guilt rages within you. And you look in the mirror and you can't even face yourself. You've lost all self-respect that you ever had from the roaring of your guilt. And that only basically and generally increases as you go on in life. Because you're well into one habit when you begin another. And the next thing you know, your life is just this big network of sinful habits. Each one bringing their own source of roaring. And so what you begin to hunger and thirst for is, God, how can I get out of this? How can I find relief from this? And until you come to God, there is no relief. And so you go looking in all the wrong places, don't you? You ever wonder why there's so many alcoholics out there? Because they have a thirst. It's a thirst to quench the guilt and the roaring. And they find temporary comfort in the warmth of the alcohol. It sort of numbs you. That's why you get these names of certain drinks like Southern Comfort, right? Which, may I suggest, would take you a lot further south than you plan on going. <laughs> I've used that one before, but it's a good place to say it again. Southern Comfort. What a, what a contradiction of terms. Southern Comfort. I'll tell you what, whatever comfort you get with it today is going to come from tomorrow and maybe the next day as well because you're going to feel so bad when you polish that bottle off when you wake up the next morning and your head is aching and raging and the slightest pin drop sounds like an atom bomb and you can't deal with anything or anyone and you feel like that and it goes on and on. Southern comfort. Give me a break. But you do it to put out the fire of the guilt. Someone has well described an alcoholic like a man leaping from a burning building. Now there's, of course, all kinds of other contributing factors. Father, alcoholic, we're not getting into all that. But I'm saying this, people look for a relief from their guilt and there's a thirst to get rid of that guilt. And when Jesus says, he that comes to me will never hunger, never thirst, he's talking about the ultimate cure and answer for that guilt and that that kind of thirst will go away because you know where to go to be relieved of the guilt and to live your life every single day knowing that this may not be my best day but one thing I know for sure my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness foul I to the fountain fly wash me Jesus Savior or I die you know there's a place 
where your guilt has been forever forgiven already, washed away by the blood since past, present, and future. That assures heaven for you now. And so you know that even now you stand before God in the righteousness of Christ that's been given to you. That's your position. And so you rejoice that though this may not be the best day or the best season, or you've come back from a retreat and sinned immediately, and you think, well, retreats don't help. And if a retreat doesn't help, and I was so blessed there, and I come back and I do this sin, then nothing helps. And the devil says, now you're getting it, now you're getting it. To know that in Christ my guilt has been washed away. That He bore my guilt at the cross. He died in my place for my guilt. Well now, I can live life still as a human being. As a forgiven sinner, Christian believer, who knows God, but not as perfectly as I want to. And I can enjoy the fact that I know Him even when I'm not doing so well because He has done so well at forgiving my sin, at providing for it. And then to know that practically speaking, that the Bible says that I can come boldly to the throne of what? Grace. To find help in a time of need. That says to me that not only is the foundation of my forgiveness, that my position in Christ is all finished. I'm perfect before God by the blood of Christ, positionally. But to know that practically, when I've got myself in experience, in sin that has broken my fellowship with God and brought a renewed guilt to my conscience, that I can go immediately to a place called the throne of grace to find help in just such a time. Lord, what do I do now? Remember, first of all, you've been saved by grace. What do I do? Secondly, come, because this is just what I told you, an hour of need to my throne of grace. And I'll cleanse you afresh and anew, practically, in your mind, right now, in your thinking. I'll restore the fellowship, and you go on your way. And so you cease to hunger and thirst because you know what's been done, and you know where to go. Isn't that great? Now that makes sense to me. That excites me. So you know the ultimate truth about God in your life. You cease to hunger and thirst for the ultimate cure for guilt in your life. Whoever the Son sets free is free indeed, and that is especially true concerning guilt. Here's another thought I find here. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never hunger, and you believe in me, you'll never thirst. You find the ultimate purpose for your life. There is such a hopelessness among people today. That's why there's such a state of violence around us. It is an index to the hopelessness of life. I don't know if you're staggered at this, but the low premium on life today is amazing to me. You know, to get initiated into a gang, you have to do some radical murder thing just to get into the gang, to prove that you're really whatever you are. And that shows this purposelessness that gives you in the end a very low value on life that is reflected in all the music of the day. I was going to say young people, but Mick Jagger is not young anymore. Look at those guys in that band, man. Old people of the day. Anyhow. It's reflected in the music, the behavior, the lifestyles, and all of that. The lightless, sightless eyes of these people. 
They are living without God, so they have no purpose for their life. So they hunger and they thirst for a purpose. And to think that the problem would be so bad, you would find some kind of purpose in a gang that goes around murdering people, drive-by shootings, graffiti ruining buildings. I mean, we we don't need to go deep into the depths of all that they do that's so horrifying. And that's just one little segment of life. How about the guy who stalks alone the streets as a serial whatever? There's all kinds of them. And so you find the ultimate purpose for your life. How good it is to be able to to know that there's a purpose for your life, that you exist for a purpose. I mean, look at the suicide rate. That says there's no purpose for me living. It seems as though with the, the hippie movement and everything since then, that it seems like the answer that people have embraced is, look, there is no real purpose to life. So the best way to find at least a fleeting purpose is to party throughout life. In other words, get all the pleasure you can, however you can, any time you can. It so reminds me of Isaiah twenty-two thirteen, where it says, But see, there is joy and revelry, the slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine, and they say, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's no purpose to life. So the way we live our life is by partying, and then eventually we're going to die anyway. You have these people that one of their goals is to get so high and do so many radical, shocking things, and that then becomes a purposeful way to go out. I want to die doing this great, weird thing. Like the bombers, you know, in Israel. These people strapping bombs, they find purpose to their life being a suicide bomber of all things, killing innocent children, you see? Worldwide, the human condition causes you to hunger for a purpose, and the purpose is found in Jesus Christ, and how great it is to know that He has a plan and a purpose for you. I remember people saying to me before I was a Christian, listen, do you know that God loves you and has a plan for your life? Now later on, some very heavy and intense and sanitary and pasteurized theologians tried to tell me that's politically incorrect and theologically incorrect to tell people God loves you and has a plan for your life. I was very happy these cranky old sheep were trying to steal all my joy and push me into some weird place in the Christian life. But when I was too dumb to know, because I wasn't converted, and someone said, do you know God loves you and has a plan for your life? It just caused excitement to ring in my heart. You mean God is there and He cares? And he's thought about me enough to give me a plan for my life. And I remember laying awake nights, coming home from these parties, and thinking, what if it's true? And what if I could know him and know his plan? Oh, how happy I am to say 25 years later, it's true. And I've been knowing that plan. And it is good. And it is perfect. You cease to hunger for those kinds of answers and you enter into the richness of a purpose in life with God and giftedness that's unique and that you blossom in and you grow in. You see the bud of your giftedness. You see it slowly just begin to show itself in the early years. And and as you continue to walk with Christ and seek after His plan and His purpose, you see the, the giftedness blossom out more and more. And then you see others touched by that giftedness and the fragrance of the blossom and so on. And it's just an ever-increasing thing. Exactly the opposite of life outside of Christ. You find the ultimate purpose to your life. You quit hungering and thirsting for those things, and you find 
I like this, the ultimate, and I'm going to end with this, relationship for your life. The ultimate relationship in life. Jesus said, if you'll come to me, you'll never hunger. And if you believe in me, you'll never thirst. For what? For that ultimate relationship. You see, all relationships, even the best, are in the end full of frustration. Right? You find your knight in shining armor, ladies. Several years down the road, you turn and look, and it's so tarnished, you wonder if it's the same armor. Are you sure you're not the black knight, you know? And there's been moments, isn't it true, you know, you guys, when you thought you married the Queen of Sheba and suddenly it seemed like it was the Witch of Endor? (laughs) Surrender Dorothy, you know, on her broomstick. Even the best relationship is full of frustration, isn't it? You know why? Because we're human. We're human. And it isn't because everything's so wrong with the other person, everything's so right with us. It's because we are stuck in this body, in this humanness. And that's why Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me of this body of death? And he grabbed for an analogy from life where when a guy murdered someone, This is what he reached for as his analogy. When a guy murdered someone, a certain form of punishment was to take the dead man and strap him to the back of the murderer and let him wander around the streets with that body strapped to him and let the body begin to rot until it rotted into his body and began to corrupt his body and he became gangrenous or whatever then he would slowly die from the body that he had killed. That is what Paul was pointing to, exactly. Historically documented. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, how I thank God in Jesus Christ that I will be delivered when I go into his presence. The ultimate relationship. Even when you're with the best person, they're in this humanness where Paul says there's no good thing that dwells in here. And again, those of you that are early on or been a Christian many years but don't know much, you find out after a while how right Paul really was. I believe he was at the holiest moment in his life when he wrote that, and that's why his sensitivity to his own sin was so great. Not at the lowest, but the highest moment. You see, your kids, those of you that have kids, you raise them. They're the joy of your life. They're born into this world. They excite you and thrill you. It's the greatest moment you've been waiting, you've been praying, and there they are. And you're so excited. And the years roll by, and you see your failures with them. And it's frustrating. It's disappointing. So there is no ultimate relationship in life, except when you come to the one who says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. If you will come to me, you will never hunger and you'll never thirst. You know why? Because Jesus Christ brings the ultimate relationship in Christ where there is no sin to pollute it. There is always a listening ear. His caring eyes are always upon you. He is always everything you ever hoped he would be and only proves to be more as the years roll by. As you find that you can now tolerate and deal with and cultivate in a better way the best of your relationships in life, the most important, 
because you're no longer looking to this human person to be perfect, to give you the perfect relationship. You know they can't. But you know that He can. And then He, at the same time, sheds His love abroad on your heart to minister back into that relationship. And you find all your relationships become better as you have deep within the ultimate relationship. You cease to hunger and thirst for the ultimate relationship because now you have it. And it ministers to all the other ones in your life. So he's not looking for promising even perfection here. He's talking about real answers, real provision. You will never hunger and you will never thirst in the ways that matter the most in our journey through this life. Have you come to him? Do you know him in this way? He invites you to come. Open your heart. Confess your sin to him. Just open your heart right where you are. Say, Jesus, this is for me. I want you. This is everything I've been looking for. It's everything I want. Come and live within me. Bring this love. Bring this life. Forgive this sin that has wrecked me. Bring these answers. And let me become one this day that will never hunger and never thirst for these things again. And if you will do that, if you open your heart, he will come. Open up to him now as we pray. Father, thank you that you have so loved the world that you sent your only begotten Son, that whoever would come and believe in you, Lord Jesus, would not perish but have everlasting life. And here you tell us if we will come and believe on you as the bread of life, the great provision, that we will find the solutions we've been looking for in all of these areas for so long. Lord, encourage us all in these great truths and bring them back again and again to our minds and our hearts that we might be drawn ever and always on, Lord Jesus, into this great ultimate relationship with you. We do ask it that we might know you, that we might enjoy your love, that we might be free, and that we might be used of you to bring others into this great freedom and love as well. We do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.